Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and today I'm bringing you a piece that is a follow-up on a series that we did earlier this year on fentanyl overdoses in the state. Over two episodes, I talked to lawmakers, doctors, lawyers, harm reduction specialists, recovering addicts, law enforcement, and more about the realities of the drug. To give you a quick recap here, and bear with me, there's kind of a lot to go through, but fentanyl is this powerful painkiller. It's similar to morphine, and it's used in hospitals, but it's also illegally produced, and uncontrolled versions of it have flooded the drug market in the last decade or so. Fentanyl is cheaper and more powerful than other street-level opioids, making it a very popular option. It's so powerful, in fact, that tiny amounts of it can be fatal. It's a major driver of the U.S. seeing a record of nearly 110,000 drug overdose deaths in 2022. During my reporting on the first two pieces, the Drug Enforcement Agency described it to me as the worst drug crisis they'd ever seen. Many experts blame overprescription of legal opioids in the last two decades or so for fueling people's addiction. That's part of the reason why governments, including Nevada, sued major pharmaceutical companies and are securing billions of dollars from them through settlements. And so Nevada has been trying to get control of its opioid problem for years now. And during the 2023 state legislative session, several lawmakers brought forward bills looking to curb the fentanyl crisis. The bills that gained the most traction were looking at increasing penalties for possessing certain amounts of the drug, but there were a lot of opposition to bills like that, saying that the bill would hurt and unintentionally target users and not the drug dealers. But really what I found interesting was all of the cans of worms that were opened up once we started having conversations about fentanyl. Like the fact that the state does not have a statewide crime lab, or that we don't have the capability to test amounts of substances in seized drugs. For me, it also highlighted the glaring problems in how we talk about and address drugs in general. It turned into this really complicated web of nuance and frustration from all sides, with bureaucracy plaguing public health institutions and law enforcement cooperation. And so this episode is a follow-up a few months after all the dust has settled and those bills had been signed by the governor. I talked to my colleague Sean Galanka, who's also been following fentanyl, as well as Nevada AP reporter Gabe Stern, who worked on a great piece on fentanyl in the state earlier this year. Gabe, Sean, thank you so much for joining me today. You guys have also done a lot of reporting on fentanyl in the state, so welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Hi, Joey. Hi, Sean. Hi, Gabe. So to start off, you know, we talked a lot about this. Sean and I were actually just on our our sister podcast, CityCast Vegas, talking about fentanyl last week. But this bill, SB 35, which was kind of the main fentanyl bill, there were two fentanyl bills. And they got rolled into just one. One was presented by Attorney General Aaron Ford, and the other was presented by Senate Majority Leader Nicole Cannizzaro. Uh, Cannizzaro's bill got rolled into Ford's bill. Sean, let's start by talking about how that bill changed. It it started off more strict on fentanyl, but it's actually gotten like less strict, right? How did that change? Right. So I think kind of the, the, the thrust of the conversation this session was what are the penalties and what are the the thresholds for prosecution? So going into the session, there was a change in 2019 under state law to make it so that fentanyl trafficking, the threshold for prosecuting that was 100 grams or more of fentanyl. And trafficking by its nature is, is kind of a possession statute. It says, you know, if you have 100 grams of fentanyl, basically that is enough that you are trafficking that, even if 
you know, you're not selling it. Technically, just possessing that amount is is considered trafficking. Attorney General Ford wanted to increase those penalties, lower the thresholds to go after distributors. And so originally, Ford's bill looked to set that threshold for low-level trafficking at four grams or more. So a, a real step down from 100, but it wasn't quite as low as some of the Republican bills that were looking to tackle this, such as Governor Joe Lombardo's bill that would have raise penalties for possession of the drug in any amount. And so we kind of had this scale, right, where you have the current law set at 100, you have priority proposals going as low as infinitely small amount of fentanyl technically would be criminalized at a higher level to some of these middle proposals, four grams, 14 grams. And eventually, through these conversations, the final bill ended up setting low level trafficking at 28 to 42 grams with kind of higher penalties going up beyond that. Yeah, and Sean and I talked with Attorney General Aaron Ford about that. The truth of the matter is, as I've stated time and time again, we do not endeavor to recreate the war on drugs. People can take me at my word or they cannot, but I know what my purpose was in bringing this bill, and it was to find an appropriate balance between the public safety component that's at issue here and the public health component at at, at issue here. I did also talk to Clark County Public Defender John Pirro about this, who was against the bill during the legislative session and is still against the bill now. No possession law, which is that's what this is. This is a possession law, is going to move the needle on drug use or drug overdoses. But what we do have is 40 years worth of data that shows that it will increase mass incarceration. We live in the United States where We incarcerate more people per capita than any other developed nation in the world. With 2.3 million people incarcerated and over 5 million people on some level of supervision. And we just have not won this war using the same type of policies that were passed in SB 35. Now, is this policy less regressive than some other states have passed? Yes. So. It's like a Pyrrhic victory. Do I feel like I won something? No, I don't, because this will still harm people and this will not reduce overdose deaths. Here's Attorney General Ford again. The purpose of this trafficking statute, it's to presume that a certain amount of possession is over and above a personal use number. Uh, and, And we were trying to find what that number was. I initially contended that it should be four grams. And people like Erica Roth and the public defender's accurately and effectively pointed out that's the size of a sugar packet. And that probably should not be where we start in this. And that's why we ultimately did not start at at four grams. Now, let's be clear. It takes less in terms of an amount or a weight of fentanyl to kill people than it does, say, cocaine or some other type of drug. But confounding the issue was also the conversation around qualitative testing versus quantitative testing. And so the issue became a lot more complex than simply looking for numbers. Yeah. And so Sean and I actually talked to Elise Monroy, who's with Overdose Data to Action about this. She's a harm reduction advocate. It did feel very thrown together, but there were a lot of bills that felt just like that in those last. I remember seeing both of you guys like running around the building. It was insane. Like I left feeling like almost dizzy and queasy at the end of that day. Like I was just, I couldn't believe how many things had happened. And I just couldn't believe it was like, shall we make laws? But it is. And 
But I do think that this bill, just from running along people that were working with the attorney general, like this bill did have a lot of stakeholder vetting and stakeholder discussion. And it didn't seem like there was really any interest in doing anything different. So I think this bill was going to be what it was going to be. The recovery community that said that, look, four grams could very well be personal use. And we would not feel comfortable attributing a trafficking intent to a person who has four grams on them. That said, we could generally agree, the, some of the members of the recovery community would say, that someone having 28 grams is not likely for personal use. And there's probably a more nefarious purpose associated with them possessing that amount of drugs. And that's how we came to, that's one of the ways in which that we came to an agreement on what those numbers would be. And Gabe, you talked to Attorney General Aaron Ford a lot, you know, throughout the the session. How did his tone change throughout the session on his bill and, and on fentanyl? Yeah, I think in following this from, you know, February, March until the end of session, you could see how strong of a coalition that harm reduction advocates had in sort of sounding an alarm where they said, hey, not only does this repeat war on drug policies, but the state's just testing infrastructure isn't built to prosecute fentanyl. Yeah. And so Sean and I actually talked to Elise Monroy, who's with Overdose Data to Action about this. She's a harm reduction advocate. We don't have the capacity in Nevada right now to do the testing necessary to ensure that people are like to ensure that the state can frankly follow the law. And why I'm concerned about some of these laws, they're passed in a way where they can't be implemented. People may have their constitutional rights stepped on. And then these people who are living in active chaotic addiction, possibly homeless, possibly jobless, are the ones who are supposed to be in a position to to test these laws. Like, it's just not right and it's not fair. One of the biggest critiques that they had was that Nevada's drug testing capacity tests drugs in a qualitative manner, which means it detects for the presence of a drug in a mixture, but not the proportion. And one thing that we see is that fentanyl is laced in so many things. So with the threshold being four grams, say someone has five grams of cocaine and it's laced with fentanyl, whether they know that or not, they could be prosecuted as a fentanyl trafficker rather than a cocaine user. And so when I talked to the attorney general, I think it was March, it was early on in the legislature, I asked him, hey, you know, in this bill, is there the capacity to also update the state's testing labs? But the thing about updating those labs is it's extremely expensive, it's costly, and it takes a very long time. And Attorney General Ford said that could be in legislation, but not this one. And he sort of brushed it off as happening this session. But over time, he warmed up to the idea more because it came up in committee hearings. It was a very vocal critique. And so, you know, at a press conference later, he said that he was looking at it and they were, you know, looking at alternatives. What ended up happening in the bill, and I think this was a reason because it's so costly, is that so it's not that they are now updating their labs. It's not what I think some advocates had originally hoped for, but his office did commit to raising the issue and taking on the state's testing labs in this bill, which he was originally not too open to. I'll just add to that that Certainly, the state is taking at least one step forward in addressing the testing through a separate bill, Senate Bill 412, which was 
Governor Joe Lombardo's crime bill. One portion of that that ended up being passed into law was some funding for a couple quantitative testing machines for the Department of Public Safety. Here's Ford again. What I was told initially was that it would take more than those machines in order to make that transition. We need training, we need personnel, we need expertise, we need time. And so that's why the study is going to be part and parcel of this transition and the purchase of those machines, while a certain, certainly a necessary part won't be completely fulfilling the need that the study is going to be accomplishing. I think there are still, you know, steps to moving toward a, a place where Nevada can really properly conduct that quantitative testing, you know, training, more funding for it, this study that's going to happen in the interim. But at the very basic level, they're now at least purchasing the machines to be able to conduct some of that testing. And that's also a reason that the lack of testing is a reason that the threshold now starts at 28 grams. It was originally four. That's a very large difference. And that's because it takes into account that they're just testing for the presence and not the quantity of fentanyl. I talked with Assemblywoman Brittany Miller after the bill passed the second house and was headed to the governor's desk. And I asked her, hey, you know, if the state does get the testing equipment to test for the quantity of fentanyl so they could measure pure fentanyl, would you be open to lowering the threshold below 28 grams? And she said that she would. So I think we could see this come up again in 2025 or 2027 if the state's testing labs are updated. This this is more of the beginning of a conversation rather than the end of it. Another thing, uh, this is the beginning of drugs in some way, you know, whether it's the opioid crisis or prescription pills, but fentanyl is kind of the big boogeyman drug this year, but they, you know, they're already talking about xylazine and stuff, right? These other drugs that are in the market that could potentially be deadlier and, and scarier. But, but a lot of people I talked to, a lot of harm reduction people, they didn't seem like they were totally satisfied with how this bill ended up. You know, maybe they were happy that it was, I think some people would say watered down, but Sean and I talked to attorney general Ford and he said that he didn't agree that it was watered down. I'm happy. I'm happy with it satisfied with it is probably a better phrase. And speaking of phrases, I wouldn't use the phrase watered down. I wouldn't say that the bill was watered down. I'd say that it went through the quintessential example of what legislation goes through, and that's compromise. That's working together with stakeholders and interest groups, with people who have a desire to ensure that we have the most precise opportunity to address a very real issue in our state. We talked to a lot of public defenders for the original story, and then I followed up with John Pirro, who had this to say. We definitely made an impact on what this bill looked like and how it moved from start to finish. And I think working with community and hearing them out and getting them involved changed where this bill started to where it finished. So that part is good. But I also, as a public defender and somebody who gets to participate in the legislative process, you know, as part of my job, I feel a tremendous amount of responsibility for the people who cannot always be in those rooms, the rooms where it happens. And I feel like I failed those people. I feel like I let them down and they will be actively harmed by this legislation. Even though it's better, I still feel like I failed them. And so that has been weighing on me because those people don't get to be in the rooms that we get to be in, Joey. They don't get to have a say in what type of policies are going to affect their lives. I get to have 
some influence on that process, but it's just not fair to them. You look at the way this started, and it was the Democratic Attorney General and Democratic Senate Majority Leader, who was a former county prosecutor, who led the charge in this and were saying when they first introduced their tandem of bills, let's set the threshold for low-level trafficking at four grams. So certainly these harm reduction advocates who were opposed to these increasing penalties and lower thresholds in any level found some sense of a win in that the, the final legislation was at 28 grams rather than than four or, you know, potentially even lower as the governor and, and some Republican lawmakers desired. Gabe, I think you actually, because, you know, as an AP reporter, you don't just report on Nevada, although you are the Nevada AP reporter, but you get to look at things from kind of a bigger lens, right? A national lens. And so what is, does the Nevada law look like in comparison to other states that have similar laws? I think there are a few aspects to that, and there's some similarities and some differences. I think similar to other states, Republicans were very on board with increasing criminal penalties for fentanyl, and it was the Democrats that were split on it. And it was the Democrats who wanted to take a closer look at this and the real concerns that they had about we don't want to repeat war on drugs policies and we don't want low-level users to get grouped in with traffickers. We see that across a lot of states. And so there were hundreds of fentanyl crime bills in at least 46 states this past legislative session. And we saw this from both Democratic and Republican legislatures. So we saw it in states like New Jersey, Oregon, and Nevada. We also saw it in Alabama, South Carolina, and West Virginia, and more states beyond that. California's debate looks very similar to Nevada's about, okay, who who will this lock up? Is it actually the traffickers? In New Jersey, they lowered the threshold for what's known as a second degree crime there to five grams of fentanyl. In South Carolina, possession of two grains, a fraction of one gram is now a felony. And then trafficking felonies now start at four grams. Alabama, it's now one gram of quote pure fentanyl that's not mixed in another, into another drug is now a trafficking penalties. When you can look at what different states have done, Nevada, the testing is different than Alabama or West Virginia or Oregon, where other laws were passed. And so just looking at what new thresholds there are that qualify as trafficking, you also have to look at that state's testing infrastructure, what they've done historically, what the amount for trafficking was beforehand, and just comparing threshold to threshold to threshold might tell some of the story, but doesn't tell the whole thing. The political influence is also you know, play a real factor here. There's certainly more of a, a left-leaning wing within the, the legislative Democratic caucus. And we saw that some Democratic lawmakers were not supportive of, of these increased penalties. And I think it's, it's worth noting as well that it's hard to get the pulse of the whole Republican caucus on this, but at least Senator Jeff Stone, I mean, he was in favor of a Republican-backed bill that lowered the threshold further below four grams, so much harsher penalties. I do think the testing capacities does make where the lack of capacity to test for the proportion of fentanyl in a mixture does make Nevada unique in its own way. I want to move forward here, kind of looking ahead, right? The big news story now, now that the legislature is over and, and this fentanyl bill has passed in lesser capacity than was originally proposed, is that the state now has you know $1.1 billion in opioid settlement funds coming into the state. This is from the attorney general. He's, he's part of a collaboration of, other, of states suing pharma companies, Walgreens and CVS, all these different companies. And, and they're, they're winning these cases that bring in hundreds of millions of dollars to the state. Sean, we talked to the attorney general about this. 
So the $1.1 billion that we have secured that will come in, let's be clear, over the next 20 years or so, depending upon what the particular settlement was. Some have come in their entirety already. Some will come in over seven years. Some will come in over 20 years. But at the end of the day, it will be over $1.1 billion that has come into the state to assist in abating this crisis. And those decisions on how to abate the crisis will be made by professionals who are social workers, who are academicians, who are others who work in this arena to try to help people. So as a general matter, the, the litigation is over with. There are a couple of bankruptcies that are pending, which means that technically the case is not over. But until those bankruptcies close out and we determine, and the courts determine how much money we will be, the case is over. So you got Purdue, you got Mallinckrodt, and a couple of other places, that, a couple of other entities that filed bankruptcy. But that piece of lit- that piece of litigation has concluded at this juncture, beyond, aside from, again, the bankruptcies. I think it's important to remember that this is going to be happening over, I think, 20 years, really, is when all this money is going to be coming into the state. Certainly, large chunks of it have already come in. But I think similar to what we saw back in the, I want to say, early 2000s, late 90s, when there was this national response to litigating tobacco companies and the response to to smoking and cigarettes. We're now seeing that, I think, similarly with opioids, where now there's a lot of money from these lawsuits to spend on the public health response to the opioid crisis and, you know, to get people who are struggling with drug use and drug abuse to get them the help that they need. That that kind of public health funding is just something that I think the state has really lacked for a long time in this space. And so now you're probably going to see a lot more just in the news about kind of where this money is going. Clark County is spending $64 million on a, on a big opioid treatment center in Southern Nevada. And so there's going to be some large scale efforts to really put this money to use and, and to remediate the crisis. I saw Clark County just announced they're going to spend 60 some odd million of the opioid summit funds they brought in to create an opioid facility. That's exactly what we're talking about. We're looking for opioid-specific, abatement-specific ideas like that to, to come about. So we're proud of that type of thing. We're proud of people thinking out of the box and trying to see how we, again, help the foster care system. That's something that I've mentioned since day one. We should look at how the foster care system has been impacted by those who have been impacted by opioids. There's something else happening in both the North and the South that isn't necessarily tied to the funding secured by the Attorney General, but Elise told me more about it. So the Northern Nevada Harm Reduction Alliance is a group of volunteer harm reductionists, frankly, of folks in Northern Nevada who have come together to try to increase capacity for harm reduction work in Northern Nevada. There has been a Southern Nevada Harm Reduction Alliance in Clark County for a number of years. They have run out of track B with a lot of other kind of treatment providers. And the health district has worked to support their initiatives and they do awareness and outreach. We noticed with the OD2A grant, we noticed there was like a, a void up here. We didn't have anything like that. So in this last year, the OD2A grant has been providing administrative support for the Nevada Northern Nevada Harm Reduction Alliance to start. And Elise was also thinking about what those opioid settlement dollars could do, too. So do I think things are going to happen? Yes. I think that 
opioid settlement dollars are going to be used to expand treatment and supportive services, but we're already chasing xylazines. So I don't know. Here's public defender John Pirro again, who wasn't as happy with that money that was coming in as others. Colorado appropriated in their bill a lot of money towards solving this problem. And we now, we know we have what? Close to a billion and a half dollars from opioid settlement funds. And this this, this piece of garbage was the best solution we could come to the table with. Okay, to wrap up, I just want to talk about, you know, we've all spent a lot of time reporting on fentanyl and opioids in the state. And I want to talk about just kind of our takeaways from this reporting. I know for me, one of the biggest things that really stood out to me was that it was actually one of the final quotes in my series earlier this year, which was from Elise Monroy. And she just said that, you know, we the opioid crisis is not necessarily a drug addiction crisis, right? It's, it's a crisis of a poverty crisis, a mental health crisis, drugs, opioids, fentanyl, are all a symptom of of these kind of bigger systemic issues in our society. And I think that really stuck with me. Uh, and I've been thinking a lot about it, you know, in my reporting moving forward is just kind of how housing and mental health and every bill that they're passing at the legislature is probably tied back to fentanyl in some weird way that you don't even think about every day. But Sean and Gabe, what were your big takeaways? We'll start with you, Sean. Yeah, I think, you know, coming away from this type of policy reporting, I I, I tend to always just kind of gravitate to what's really the the human impact here. And I, I just think that it's it's easy to get lost in these conversations about, oh, what are the weights and what are the thresholds? I can throw out whatever numbers of four grams, 28 grams, 100 grams, you know, and it's easy to get lost in that conversation. But I think it's just important at the end of the day to remember that we're talking about the lives of people who, you know, whether it's a family who has lost a loved one to, to an, an overdose death or somebody who's struggling with, with drug use themselves. And at the heart of it all, there are people there. And so it's important to remember that the changes in the law and the amount of money that's being brought in through these these lawsuits are intended, at the very least, to to help people and, and address this crisis, which is, you know, just affecting so many Nevada families. Yeah, I think there there are a lot of different aspects to it. And I think it's also when reporting on the state house, it's important to know whether the conversation happening at the policy level is the one happening on the ground. And I think it took a lot of different, this was a bill that had a lot of coalitions going for and against it. And those coalitions kind of grew and grew to people who worked, helped people who had who had addiction issues and people who were on the ground, public defenders who represented them in court. And you had law enforcement officials who said, hey, threshold right now makes it impossible for us to do our job. And I think the further that this bill moved along, the more nuanced that the discussion got because more and more people added their voices to it. I think that it wasn't really on too apparent, at least in the initial discussions and hearings, that many people don't know that they're taking fentanyl. Many people who are taking it, it's not because they want something much stronger. It's because it's the only thing that they can afford out there. And so sort of, as you said, Joey, with so many different aspects moving into this, you know, you can't pass a bill simply to tackle the law enforcement side of this without it affecting public health and vice versa. If you're going to lower the threshold 
that criminalizes it in a trafficking sense. If it does wrap up low-level users, the public health resources in jails and prisons would be the only thing available to them. And so I think that I think it became more apparent to lawmakers further along in the legislature that you cannot separate the different aspects of this. One bill fentanyl will affect both the law enforcement, the public health, the money side, every part of it. And I think that became more apparent. Yeah, I think that's really well said, Gabe. And I guess I, I want to wrap up with one more thought that just came to me while you were speaking, which is just that everyone thinks that their way of doing it is the is going to help, right? It seems that everybody that I talk to is very concerned about this crisis and really wants to help. And I think that the big schism comes from just the different ways that people think will help. And there's there's externalities to everything and there's something bad that comes out of everything that's good. So Sean and Gabe, thank you guys both so much for chatting with me today about this topic. Thanks for having me, Joey. Thanks, Joey. Well, thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I've been your host, Joey Lovato. This show is reported and produced by me with additional help from Michelle Rendells. You can email us at podcast at com. Our music is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from June Pearson, Storyblocks, and myself, Joey Lovato. I've been your host, and we'll talk to you next week.